prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Do you hear that this morning? In, in these people. There's part of you, as you're reading through this, this narrative, this story of, of God's work in these people's lives, where you just, if you could physically be there, there's every part of you that just wants to shake them and say, are you serious? Are you absolutely serious? Are you all village idiots? Because you know what? Can you not see his hand is upon you? He has blessed you. He has provided for you. Even in your lowest times, he's been faithful. He's given you a a cloud by day to lead you. He's given you a fire by night to lead you through the wilderness. Even in those 40 years wandering around in the wilderness, he still provided you shoes. He provided you manna. He provided you quail. He provided you drink. He cared for you. He, are you serious? What in the world is wrong with you? What's wrong with you? But as I said, scripture, as we read Scripture, Scripture should read us. This is not just the story of Israel. As the New Covenant people, this is our story. It's a cyclical story that we, are, we find ourselves also involved in. Of God's rich faithfulness, his abundant love and mercy and provision and care. God is just pouring out these gifts of love and provision and care on us, his people. But yet we acted and act presumptuously. We are stiff necked people who set up our own gods. Maybe not a golden calf, But we set up our own gods and follow our own paths. So this is our story. This is our story. And this morning, the thing that I I want us to understand clearly, and this is going to be our, our theme for the morning, is because we are so prone to sin, Because we are so prone to sin and because God is so rich in mercy, ongoing repentance should mark our lives. Because we are so prone to sin, much like these Israelites, just like these Israelites, we are so prone to sin. And because God, on the other side, is so rich in mercy, just abounding, abounding in mercy, on Going repentance needs to mark our lives. Now, there's some of us, like we talked about last week, which kind of are, there's two different kinds of personalities. We, we've got kind of the, the Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh kind of mentality. Woe is me, life is rough. And then you got the Tigger, the Bob Chapel type, that's always bouncing around kind of mentality. But the same is true even when it comes to repentance. Man, when it comes to repentance, it's just, I just... I'm just this awful person. And just, you know, just this emotional basket case of depression. But then there's the other person who's just constantly bouncing. Oh, they're they're very glib about their sin. And they just kind of bounce about it and miss the whole thing. 
This is, and I'm not saying that we should not be this or not be that. There, there, there's this point where we got to find that place where we are so grieved with the sins that we are committing that we cannot stay there. And be the the Eeyore that just woe is me. Because God is so rich in his mercy. It's just abounding that, man, thanks be to God. He has forgiven that sin and we can move on. But at the same time, we cannot be just skipping over. Just saying, well, you know, God's gracious. We can just move right along. Everything's hunky-dory. But this morning, I want you i want us to seriously look at what is god's work in your life one of the activities that um the the elders and the deacons had to go through as well as uh some of our our launch team folks went through is telling what is your gospel story what and and thinking what has god been up to in my life and the activity was one where they, they were given tons of little post-it notes where you had to write down every little incident that you can remember that took place in your life. You wrote them all down, you wrote them all down, you wrote them all down, and you, as many as you can, the good, the positive, stuff that just seemed absolutely benign. And then we started arranging all those things. First, you take off all the negative ones and rewrite them onto pink little slips so they could kind of stand out. Oh my, that happened then. And then we started putting them all into chronological order. And then we divided them into chapters. And as we were looking at them, you kind of started looking and saying, wow, what was God up to in that time? He he was doing something in that chapter of my life. He's doing something powerful in this chapter in my life. What's going on now in my life? And it is an amazing thing for people to tell their stories when they're in tune to what God is doing. And it leads you to a place of tremendous gratitude. But it should also lead us to a place of repentance. Say, man, God, I during that time of my life, or during this time of my life, Lord, I need to, I need to confess my sins. But first, three things that we can learn. We are so so prone to sin. This chapter just rehearses not just the sins of God's chosen people, but even worse, the sins of God's chosen people in the face of His mercy and grace. It's one thing to sin repeatedly if you don't know God. But it's it's a whole other thing And far more worse, to sin repeatedly when you have tasted God's good grace and love. Derek Kidner uh, wrote in one of his commentaries on Ezra and Nehemiah, he said this, he observes that sin abounds, grace superabounds. Throughout this miraculous pilgrimage, they lacked nothing, and appreciated nothing. They lacked nothing, and they appreciated nothing. 
And that's, that's kind of the story of our lives, isn't it? Man, we, we live in a satisfy me kind of world. And we're so prone to sin and consumption and just uh, me-centric world or children-centric world or job-centric world or whatever kind of world that we, we, we just need to fill that me bank up as full as possible. It's easy to read this account of Israel's repeated sins in the face of God's mercy, God's mercy and just say, why don't you get it? And we got to read this chapter and realize that we're looking into the mirror. It describes the, even the propensity of my heart. My propensity to sin. Me. Your paid religious professional. It describes my, my cyclical life. Prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave a God I love. I am prone to sin. But as we read Scripture, we know that the Word of God is living and the Word of God is active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's Hebrews 4. The Bible lays bare our condition. Our true condition before God. So what do we do with this? What do we... I could just sense right now some of you going oh man i could really use a self-help uh sermon right now something light fluffy tell me a real cute story about bunnies and or about your children you know something to make me kind of feel giggle and light but this is this is important stuff that we as as god's people recognize how prone to sin we are and not just on sunday morning i'm talking about the other seven days of the week that we live. We live Sunday, Monday through Saturday. And, and we need to be a people who are so deeply aware of our sinful nature, our, our inclination to fall towards sin. We need to be very aware of that. And the thing is, I, I'm not sure that we are. If I would this morning just say, Sarah, you know, what is it that you need to repent of? Michael, why don't you just share this morning? What is it that you need? Some of you would just go, I went through a construction zone a little fast. Maybe overspent on the this or the that. I don't know. Are we really aware of how prone to sin we are? Do we even have a good enough definition of what is sin? Do we? Or is it so 
you know what, do, do what's good. Do, you, know, you know what's not bad. Don't murder. All right, got that covered. I haven't killed anybody. I'm, doing, I'm on the straight and narrow right now. You know, I, I haven't ever committed adultery. Just don't re- ever read the Beatitudes because then you're, you're really messed up. You've heard it said, but let me tell you. Do we, do we understand what God's good and perfect will is for our lives? Do we understand how much it, it breaks God's heart? When His, His covenant children choose, choose day after day after day after day, year after year, choose to wander. Do we understand that? You see, there's a paradox in, in the Christian life. The longer that you, you walk with God, truly walk closely with Him, the more godly you become. And yet, the more godly you become, the more you are aware of your, the total depravity of your heart. The longer you just really enjoy God and His presence, and you just soak it up and you understand how he is a good and merciful and loving and providing and sovereign God and you just get into that, the longer you really understand and get to know God for who he is, the more godly you become. It, it affects you. But at the same time, what happens is all of a sudden, the closer you get to God and his holiness and it affects your heart, the more you, you realize, I am messed up. I'm not just broken where some, an easy, quick fix can take care of this. I am broken. And apart from Christ, I am hopeless. Absolutely hopeless. So my, my prayer is that this morning that we find that we can identify the things in our life that we find irresistible. Man, I just need this. I need these things. I need this kind of whatever to massage who I think I am. I, identify those irresistible, needful things and replace it with an irresistible Christ. Irresistible things with an irresistible Christ. Because the more that you come to know God in your own heart through His Word, the more you will realize how prone to sin you are and how much you need Him. And this keeps you and keeps me at the foot of the cross, trusting in God's free grace. But we also need to remember the second lesson. The second lesson is this, that God is so, God is so rich in mercy. If we just say that we are so prone to sin, man, that is just going to lead to spiritual depression. But this is the good news, that God is, God's abundant mercy is the dominant theme, the dominant theme in this prayer. It begins by exalting God in His glorious name. And then it starts where the Bible does. 
with God as the almighty creator of everything who gives life to every living creature and all the angels bow to him and how he chose Abram, brought him out of the Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him a name. And then it goes on to, to say that he made a covenant with Abraham and gave to him and his descendants the land of Canaan, that God delivered his people out of Egypt and brought them through the wilderness And you've got to notice, you've got to see this, that God is the initiator in all these verses. It's not these people. God is the initiator. God is the creator. God is the one that chose Abram and gave him a new name. God is the one that initiates. Listen, I'm going to give you a land. I am this kind of a God. I love you so much that I will provide and I want to make my name great. So I am going to do this. I did this. I... Go home today and start highlighting all the things where you see them saying, you are the Lord, you found his heart, you kept your promises, you are righteous, you saw the flexions, you heard their cry, you performed signs, you made a name for yourself, you divided the sea, you cast your pers- their pursuers into the depths, you led them by day and by night, you came down from Mount Sinai, And you spoke to them. You did this. You did this, God. You did this. And then there's those things scattered in there about their unfaithfulness. But this is what God has initiated. He is rich in mercy in such a way that he initiates relationship with his people. And that is the good news about the gospel. That God, in spite of our brokenness, initiates relationship. And calls his people back to himself. That even when we are unfaithful, God is rich in mercy. And he's faithful. And he's just to forgive us from all of our unrighteousness. And I love it after even his recounting of the arrogance and the absolute stubbornness of these people. You get to verse 17. In verse 17, it says, uh, They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed. They stiffen their neck. They, they appointed a leader to bring them back to Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Does that send chills up, chills up anybody else's spine? But you are a God who is ready to forgive. But you are a God who is ready to forgive. That's the God that when we, we're singing together, that's the God that we're worshiping. It's not the God who's condemning us. It's the God who is ready to forgive. There's a song that goes through my head. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. It's your kindness, Lord, leads us to repentance. Favor, favor, Lord, is my desire. Okay. It's God's kindness that is leading us to repentance. He he is rich in how he is providing and caring for us. He is ready to forgive. So what do we do with this? How how do we respond to, to this free gift of grace? Okay, and here's where I'm starting to cut out stuff in my sermon. You got lucky, two and a half pages, just gone. Not even an amen there? 
<laughs> Thanks, guys. God, we're prone, so prone to sin, but God is so rich in mercy. So that leads us to a response. It can't just, well, that's really nice. God's just a really loving God. That's really cool. Or man, I'm really an awful person. It's got to lead us to, his mercy has got to lead us to somewhere, to something, to some kind of action. And under the big blanket, what that is, is worship. And how do we worship him? We worship him through singing songs. We worship Him through our giving of our tithes and our offerings to further the mission of God. We worship Him with giving of our time, our talents, our treasures to love and enjoy Him so that God's name can be made much of. But that's not it. That Those are not the only ways that we worship Him. A very important piece in how we worship Him, is the third point. The third lesson that we learn is that ongoing repentance should mark our lives. And there again is just another paradox or irony of Scripture that believers should all rejoice always, and yet we should mourn over our sins. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. That's Paul in, in the book of Philippians. Rejoice! Rejoice! But yet there's this call to mourn over our sins. And we've got to find that delicate balance of how do we rejoice in the Lord and the joy of the Lord is our strength. But yet we mourn and we mourn deeply over our sins. And not just our sins. Do you see what they're mourning over? These are, they're mourning over the sins of their fathers and their great-grandfathers and their great-great-grandfathers and the people they, they had no idea who they are who they are, but they got this beautiful family tree. And they know the story of these people. And they are mourning over the sins of their fathers. They're not casting blame and saying, they screwed us. You see what they did? They put us here. But they're mourning over their sins. James Boyce shows the progression that flows through this prayer. He says, first, There can be no genuine forward moral progress for either a nation or an individual without an acknowledgement of, sorrow for, and a true turning from sin. Second, he says, there can be no true sense of what sin is or knowledge of why it is sinful without a hearing of and response to the law of God. That's why it was critical again. They came back together after the Feast of of the Booths and they came together a couple days later in sackcloth and mourning. And what happened again? The priests and Levites stood up again and read the law of God. Hearing the word of God is critical. And that is why I am going to impress upon you Showing up to corporate worship as a body is critical. If you don't find it critical, man, I I hope that your life is absolutely saturated with somebody speaking the word of God into your life constantly. If it's easy for you to skip Sunday morning and just say, you know what, uh, WNBI, I'll I'll just get something there. 
Or maybe in my little uh, Max Lucado devotional book. I'll just get something quick there. The Word of God is critical to lead us to a point of repentance and ultimately to worshiping God with our whole lives. You see what's happening here? The people of God came together. They didn't go to their own house and have personal devotions. Even though those are really good, important things, they came together as a community of faith and said, we need to mourn together. We need to hear the word of God together. We need to confess our sins together. We need to worship and pray together. We are the people of God. And we need to come together to hear the word of God, to challenge one another and admonish and encourage and and point each other back to Jesus. You heard the message. You heard the word of God. Let's do this together. But thirdly, James Boyce says this, Consequently, revival must be preceding preceded by sound preaching of the whole counsels of God, particularly the law of God, which we have violated. What these people did in confessing the sins of their fathers was the opposite of what most people do today. Today, we, if people refer to the sins of the parents at all, it's an excuse for blaming our parents. But rather, what they did is they confessed and mourned over the sins of their parents that have also tainted them. I I could point to the sins of my father and my grandfather. I don't know my great-grandfather, but I, I do, yeah, I knew him. I'll tell you, there is generational sin that has so tainted me. That I need to confess I'm not going to blame my great-grandfather or my, my grandfather or my father. It's his mind to own. But I'm going to confess those sins because it keeps me apart from God. It affects my family relationships. It affects the way that I lead, the way that I shepherd, the way that I care. So ongoing repentance together as a family requires us to take sin seriously and take necessary sins to break those chains that bind us. True repentance accepts responsibility for sin and does not blame God. So I wonder, this morning, in fact, I know this morning, that some of you are going, oh man, this is an area. This is an area of my life that I I need to be honest about. But what do I do? How do I I go about this, this confessing thing? Because I'm, I'm sure they lived together and they, you know, or they kind of lived on a the Jerusalem compound, they really knew each other. They lived all in the same neighborhood, so it was a really safe community. The church is the family of God. The local church is an expression of the family of God. So how do we do this? 
together, corporately, individually, in small groups. How do we do it? Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. And this is one of those well-known things, well-known verses. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and heal their land. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and pray, I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sins. I'll heal their land. How do we do this? The first thing, it just requires a tremendous amount of humility. Humbling ourselves. By nature, we are not humble. We are prideful people. And the first thing that we are scared of is what other people are going to. Yeah, they're going, what are they going to think about me? If I say this out loud, what are they going to think? What are they going to think? But it only comes when we come before God that we are genuinely humbled. For it's then that we see ourselves as sinful and the rebellious creatures that we are. Come before God, we hear his word, we hear his law. And Lord, we are humbled before you. And if my people would humble themselves in light of what they have heard and understand that they are incorporated, engrafted into a community of people, of other messed up sinners who are humbling themselves. What a powerful thing. What a powerful testimony to this world. If the people of God actually humbled themselves. Could you imagine? Instead of these these pompous Christian right or left wing, I don't care what you are, kind of Christians, we finally humble ourselves before God and each other and pray. recognizing who we are and how broken we are. Second thing that we've, we've got to do when it comes to confession is we must pray. We do not naturally pray, do we? Except when it's all hitting the fan. We're like, man, it's a beautiful day. Thanks, God. All right, back to work. We don't naturally pray. Why? Because we believe that we are self-sufficient. That's why God often brings us very low. You see how through this whole story, he allowed these things to happen? In fact, he he ordained them to bring his people back to him. He brings brings us low. And it's often only in the very depths of life, when everything is crumbling around us, that we're willing to turn ourselves to God. And ask him for the help that we need. But it requires us to be humble. Bring us to a point of prayer. Then we must seek God's face. That's the third thing. And to seek God's face means to, to seek his favor. Seek his favor rather than the, the favor of the world around us. Seek his face. And to seek his will rather than our own will. To seek God's face means a radical change in the use of our time, our talents, our resources, our lifestyle. 
seeking his face, his will, his desire, his good and perfect will for our life is totally different than what the world is selling us. Man, God, I humble myself before you. I confess my sins. I'm praying, Lord, for your will to be done. Use me, break me. Lord, do something miraculous in my life. Take this this hard heart, this heart of stone, and transform it into something that wants to serve you and be used by you. Lord, I'm seeking your face. And I just have this picture of Moses after he sought God's face. What was it? It was radiant. And his heart was so enraged when he came down that mountain, when he saw the people constructing that idol of gold, he was enraged, but there was he was just glowing from God's presence. He sought God's face. He received the law, but he was angered by what took place. And the fourth thing is that we see here is that we must turn from our wicked ways. If we don't think that we have wicked ways, if you don't think this morning you have wicked ways, You're fooling yourself. You're fooling yourself. I don't care what your occupation is. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. If you don't think you have a wicked way about you, you're you're a fool. God does not ask For, you know, give me what you can. He desires holiness. Be holy. As I am holy. Sit around and talk to your friends long enough in this room. And you will soon find there are wicked ways. And how we view each other, how we talk about each other, how we spend our money, how we spend our time. How we have no regard for God. The guy that I I enjoy following uh, on Twitter is a guy named Jim Elif. He's He's a pastor, Baptist guy. I don't hold it against him, but he's Reformed Baptist, so there's hope. He talks about what are the substitutes for true repentance. One, and this is a substitute for true repentance. You may reform in the actions without repenting in the heart. Not getting really at the core of the issue. Man, I'm sorry, God, about that. That was a bad decision. But really never addressing what is, what is really at the core Another one is, you may experience the emotion of repentance without the effect of it. Great, great amount of tears, you know. I got emotional about that. But the true effect of repentance is what? A turning away. Metanoia, uh, going the other direction. Another one is you may confess the words of a true repenter, but never repent. You know, the good Christian face, you know. I know the right words. I practice the right words. 
I even know good definitions of these right words. But never repent. You may repent for the fear of reprisal alone, but not for the hatred of sin. You may talk against sin in public, like a true repenter, but never repent in private. You may repent primarily for temporary gains rather than for the glory of God. Man, this would really be a good, advantageous time for me to repent. But ultimately, is it for the glory of God? You may repent of lesser sins for the purpose of continuing in greater sins. If I just mention this, I will never have to address that one that's in the closet. It's easier to say, yeah, you know, the other day uh, I, I swore. Uh, I dropped the F-bomb. I, I said, it took the Lord's name in vain. That, that won't happen again. I got angry at my wife. But in reality, the deeper sins. You're, you're, you're kind of saying, I'll, I'll throw a little twig in the fire. In reality, there is a whole log that needs to be removed. You may repent so generally that you are unaware or that you never repent of any specific sin at all. Lord, forgive the sins of blah, 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 but never naming, daring to name the specific sins. You may repent for the love of friends and religious leaders and may not repent for the love of God. You may can. Confess the finished action of sin and not repent from the continuing habit of sin. You may attempt repentance of your sin while consciously leaving the door open of its opportunity. I'll confess it, but man, I'm going to leave this door open. You know? Because if it comes back in, it might not be a bad thing because I really enjoyed that sin was part of my life. You may make an effort to repent of some sins without repenting all of the sins that you know. We're, We're going to be coming to the Lord's Supper where He welcomed His disciples who are were broken men to come partake in a meal saying, this is my body that is broken for you. This is my blood that's going to be poured out for you. He had dissenters in there. He had liars. He had, he had just disciples who really did not get it. So we're going to be coming to this, and the book of Corinthians tells us that we need to examine ourselves. And last week at our small group, we talked about the joy of the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. And one of the things I think my wife says, I wish that you would have given us the opportunity to share, you know, some of the joy that we have in the Lord. The, the things that are good. And all of a sudden I go, yeah. So this morning, I don't want to rob anybody of the opportunity to take care of some repentance and some confessing. To humble yourself before God. My people will humble themselves and pray. 
hear from heaven. What will I do? I'll heal their land. Forgive your sins. Heal your land. So I'm going to open it up. And I know it's a dangerous thing and a scary thing. And we may get nobody, and that's fine. But I'm going to do the the good old fifth grader thing and fifth grade teacher thing and just sit back and wait until maybe there is a response. What is it that God is placing on your heart to confess and repent of, to seek His forgiveness?